You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. So it's a pretty big day, huh? Right? It's our first Sunday that we exist as Stanley Cup holders. Right? It's our first Father's Day as Stanley Cup holders. It's our first June 16th at... Okay, I'll quit. <clears throat> there were some guys uh, that... Uh, I heard it on the news. Uh, when the Blues were in very last place, uh, they were making bets that they would go all the way to the Stanley Cup. And, of course, everybody took that bet, right? And amazingly enough, they made it. And, of course, these guys made a ton of money. They were very confident in their assumptions about the Blues. And it ended up working out for them. Um, have you ever been a little overconfident in your assumptions? There was uh, a story that uh, I think I heard it from Adrian Rogers. But a um, little old lady in Texas, she was shopping, and she came out to her car with her packages, and she saw three men sitting in her car. So being Texas and being a little old lady, she pulled her weapon, pointed it at them, and promptly ordered them to get out of the car, which they very quickly complied. They took their little packages and they bolted. So she got in the car. She put her key in. She looked around. She thought, well, things look a little disheveled from from these guys. Put her key in the ignition and it wouldn't turn. So she jiggled the steering wheel. It still wouldn't turn. She looked around in the car a little more and suddenly it hit her. This is not her car. (laughs) So she got out. She walked about four spaces down. She got in her car, started it up and thought, first place I'm going to go is police station and report this. She was a very honest little old lady. So she went to the police station and she reported, look, here's what happened. Misunderstanding, you know, I I got confused as to which car. I did pull my weapon. Um, They took off. And she looked down the row at one of the other desks with the officers and there were three very frightened men (laughs) reporting how they had been carjacked by a little old lady on the parking lot. The so little old lady was a little overconfident in her assumptions. We're going to see that Israel today was a little bit overconfident in their assumptions in their walk with the Lord. But uh, here's what we'll find out, is that even when they are faithless, God was faithful. So let's pray. God, you go before us and you prepare the way. So as we read this scripture this morning, Lord, I just pray that the sermon that you prepared for us would do a work in our hearts, a work that's fresh and that's new and that just drives us right into your loving arms. We know that that is possible because Jesus has paved the way. Soften our hearts, Lord, to the truth that you're going to speak through our ears today and let us hear what you have for us. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, who saves us, I pray. Amen. So let's recap a little bit about what's been going on in Israel up till now. Excuse me, it's allergy time. I'll be clearing my throat a lot. I hope that's not a super distraction for you guys. Uh, Going back roughly 100 years, the people were sinning against God. And God sent Jeremiah to warn them that if they don't get things right with God, that Solomon's temple is going to be destroyed. They're going to be taken over by foreign leaders. They're going to be driven out of their land. And they're going to have to live there for 70 years. 
He tells them that in Jeremiah 25 uh, and parts of 29. I'll read that to you. You don't have to turn there. <clears throat> he told them, Turn now, every one of you, from your evil way and wicked doings. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you did not listen to me, says the Lord. And so you have provoked me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Because you have not obeyed my words, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So God provides them this warning, gives them instruction about what's coming, and their response to all of this is to Jeremiah. we got to kill this guy. He's not telling us what we want to hear. So now in our passage today, the 70 years are over. The people are back from exile, just like God promised. Worship in the temple has been restored. But all they can focus on is that things aren't like they were. Israel is now a much less magnificent place than it was. Solomon's temple has been rebuilt, but not in all the grandeur that it once was. They've lost all their perspective, and they've lost hope. They're so disillusioned that they become cynical, callous, dishonest, disrespectful, because their perspective of God was that he was a failure. So the people, once again, 100 years later, are profaning God with their actions. I looked up profane in the dictionary, the verb, and it says uh, to treat something sacred with irreverence or disrespect. So Malachi is the prophet that was sent by God to tell the people the way it is, the same way that God would if he were to come down himself and talk to them. So he's just dealt with the priest in last week's passage, right? And today he's going to deal with the people. So if you'll flip to Malachi 2, we're going to be in verses 10 to 16. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the end of the rows. Just kind of look down that way, and I'm sure somebody will hand you one. Starting in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be 
faithless. Now, if you're single, please don't tune out because you read this passage as something for married people. There'll be something for you in it too, I promise. But all of Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Um, This is a story of the gospel, believe it or not. It sounds like it's a story of punitive and disobedience and and marriage. But this is actually a story of the gospel. We're going to see that in our story today. Verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? This is the creation story, right? He's talking about creation. God's reminding them that they're all created with the intent to be his people, with the one father. He chose them out of all the other nations of the world to be his chosen people, to live lives that honor him so that they could introduce him to the rest of the world. They're special. He loves them. He always has. He always will. They're to honor him, and they're to introduce him to the rest of the world. And for millennia, he's shown them his supernatural love for them and his power over them and his watch over them. From being the children of Abraham to being drawn into Egypt, uh, where Joseph had been storing up grain for them so that they could uh, avoid famine, to when he led them out of Egypt through the desert, he provided for them there, he protected them from the chariots of Pharaoh without any kind of battle. He provided food and water for them. He led them into the promised land. And the idea of intimate relationship was obvious from the very beginning of creation and all throughout. And we cannot even fathom how close of a relationship. Closer than even a parent and a child. So he models it here, talking to them in Malachi, with the closest relationship that our human minds can even conceive. And that's the one of marriage. In Genesis, Adam and Eve, one man for one woman, right? And notice the repetition here. How many times he emphasizes the word one? Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And then in verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? He's giving them a lesson on unity. The beauty and the majesty of his design in unity for himself, with himself, sorry, and then modeled in marriage. And we tend to think of marriage as between two people, but really it's three. God's in there. And he endlessly loves them, and he bountifully provides for them, and he wants close intimacy with them, and for them to have close intimacy with each other. That's the original design. That's his creation. But he knows that they're going to blow it. So knowing that, he provides a way to repair what they're going to break. He even told them about it all the way back in Genesis 3, right? The promise of a Savior that far back. Nothing's changed today. God's design for us is the same as theirs. He loves us endlessly. He placed in us a need for relationship with Him. It's all as an outward sign to model it to others. And we're to use marriage as one example of how to model that. Right? Honoring, sacrificing for each other. One of endless commitment, a love so strong that we'll give up our own ambitions if it will benefit them. Think about that for a minute. Giving up our own ambitions, how would that shape us? Despite what our culture says, marriage is not about getting your own needs met. That's how we look at it a lot, though, isn't it? 
It's about foregoing all your own desires and sacrificing for the betterment of your spouse. That might sound foreign or might even sound harsh, but it's scriptural. Husbands, we're to love, we are to love our wives the way that Jesus loved the church. And how was that? Wasn't he all about not getting his own needs met? When did you ever see him being selfish, wanting, wanting something for himself? Foregoing all his own desires and sacrificing for the betterment of his bride, the church. Marriage molds us. It molds us to model Jesus. Gary Thomas asked this. He said, what if God's intent for marriage was not our happiness, but our holiness? My wife, Michelle, and I just celebrated our 30-year anniversary last month. In the first five years, thank you. Thank God. First five years were rough. We almost didn't make it. We were this close to divorce. Somewhere around 10 years, God started pursuing us. And then within a few years after that, we gave our lives to Jesus. But with that power of healing, each year, we now look at each other and we say, I didn't think it was possible. But I love you more this year than last. It's Jesus' power that's endless. We're created, all of us, for unity with him. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation, right? That's creation. Here's the fall. There's two offenses that God calls out about Israel. Originally, I was going to focus most of our time on the other parts of the scripture, but Malachi focused a lot of his time on their sin. And I know this might surprise you, but I'm not so good at improving on the Bible. So uh, we're going to hang out here for a bit. There's a good reason for it. First in verse 11, they profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. How? They married the daughter of a foreign god. God gave them a beautiful gift by uniting them with each other and himself, all three becoming one. His intent was super clear. God followers marrying God followers. The wisdom of his design was intended to be a safeguard against uploading idolatry into their lives. Rob Resch said this last week. He said that a community that's in faith together builds each of us up, right? So by carelessly divorcing their godly wives, they cruelly just cast them out as worthless. They just replaced them. They were ripping apart everything that God had lovingly designed for them. The unity of being one flesh, right? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The intimacy, the protection from false gods, tossing it all aside because they wanted what they wanted when they wanted it. Of course, even though God hates it, Scripture does provide for divorce in very specific situations. This wasn't one of them. They were frivolously flying in the face of God's permanent covenant marriage vows. It is the three of them. God uh, wrote for us through Isaiah in 54.5. It says, For your maker is your husband. Their precious marriages were not only to each other, but they were to God. They weren't just divorcing their spouse, they were divorcing God. Mostly just to pursue sexual pleasures. How do you think that sat with him? You can see why this was such an abomination. God also wanted their children to be brought up in God-loving homes. Verse 15 tells us that, right? says, what was the one God wanting? Godly offspring. Why? Because that would be fruit of the reconciled relationship. 
I believe it's also to carry on his name, to have as many people as possible brought up in the Jewish faith to spread the message of the glorifying covenant God that he gave us back in Genesis 3 of a Savior to come. I don't know if you saw it, but this Old Testament abomination here is also pointing to Jesus. Just as Judah was profaning the sanctuary of the Lord, at Jesus' trial, the Jews profaned the sanctuary of the Lord and King Jesus with the words, crucify him. And just as the Old Testament Jews were committing themselves to these pagan women, at Jesus' trial, the Jews committed themselves to Caesar, declaring him as their only king. So, profaning God's design and for the covenant was their first offense. Their second offense was this. While they were continuing in this profanity, they were pretending that they weren't. And they were bringing worship offerings to God on the altar. Business as usual. Don't look at our sin over here, God. Just take our offerings over here and then continue to bless us. It was all hypocrisy. They're seeking their own pleasures and they're wanting God to favor them anyway. Titus 1.6 addresses this. It says, their works deny their words. Proverbs 15.8 addresses it as well. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. They can't have it both ways. I volunteered once for this outreach ministry. Uh, it was a water ski ministry. It was called In His Wakes. And what we would do is we would teach kids to water ski in the mornings. And then at lunch we would break. Somebody would share the gospel with them. And then we'd continue teaching them to water ski in the afternoon. And uh, uh, Nate was the guy who would share the story with him. He did such a good job. So he would share the gospel story very clearly. And then he would tell them how they had to choose, right? It was their opportunity to make a choice. He said, remember how when you were water skiing, we told you to hold on to the rope, stay behind the center of the boat, and just focus on the middle, and let the boat do the work and pull you up out of the water. He said, now imagine that there were two boats, and you had your hand on the handle of this boat, and you had their hand on the handle of the ski rope attached to this boat, and they both took off, right? It would tear you apart. Or you would let go of one and chase the other, or let go of the other and chase the one. He said, it's that way with Jesus and the world. You can't have it both ways. You have to choose. Israel was trying to hold on to both. If they were truly, truly repentant, they would have left these heathen women and reconciled with their true wives. That would have been evidence of a changed heart that honors God. So offense one, tearing apart and profaning God's loving design for them, and offense two was hypocritical empty worship. The other day, my wife and I were having a discussion, and you see, she's a person that sees God in everything. I mean, if we get the closest parking space at Walmart, she's like, ooh, God, thank you. But mostly she sees him in creation. She sees him in animals. She sees him in scenery, every sunset. And she has a scientific mind, so knowing the science behind a lot of all that, how it all works, doesn't draw her farther from God, it draws her closer to him, seeing that he designed all of that scientific stuff down to the incremental parts and makes it work. It blows her away, points her to God every day. So we're having this discussion in the car about one of our Facebook friends who's a professing Christian, and he posted, they say everything happens for a reason, but what about these things? And he made this list of things he was disappointed about. And she said, man, where do you start with something like that? She said, and listen to this, I thought this was so profound. She said, we can realize that God is in every minute of our life and allow him to shape us. 
Or we can resist that truth and we end up shaping ourselves. We can realize that God is in every minute of our life and allow that to shape us. Or we can resist that truth and we end up shaping ourselves. And that's exactly where Israel was. They resisted seeing that God was in the details of their circumstances, how they had sinned a hundred years ago, and everything that God told them came true. And instead of seeing that God was orchestrating all of this in order to bring them back to him, they saw God as failing, either letting him down or not being able. They ignored and dismissed their own sin as insignificant, gave themselves a pass, yet they still expected that worship would make for close relationship with God. They didn't see God in every minute. They didn't let him shape them. They shaped themselves. They allowed Satan to trick them into believing that their trials were occurring because God was a mess. That he had reneged on his promises and that he'd failed them. And so they turned to self-pleasures, finding their own solutions. Our pleasures might look a little different. Accomplishments, status, Relationship with something mind-altering like alcohol or porn. Maybe it's information and answers that provide you with a temporary security. Like this, you have a doctor helping you with an uncertain medical condition, right? Not knowing is the hardest part. Waiting for that test result. Letting the doctor sort through things to figure it out. So in a panic, our first solution, our first solution is to run to the internet, right? Google it. WebMD. There's nothing wrong with answers. I mean, we're called to be good stewards of the body God gave us. But we can idolize that piece of information, seeking assurance that everything's going to be well in order to feel a temporary peace. We dismiss what God can do. What if this, though? What if we went to God first before the Internet and we said, Lord, if you don't take away this affliction... Or even, Lord, please don't take away this affliction. Teach me how to show people that this cannot steal my joy that Jesus himself gave me and turn it into something that glorifies you. We had some friends at our old church, a couple, and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And this has been some years ago. Um, But it was haunting her husband. And it was just weighing heavily on his mind. She had a a fairly good prognosis. They said there's a super high cure rate with this. He said, and that just doesn't relieve my mind. It just haunts me all the time. And one day he came in and he said, you know what? Last night this was haunting me as I was laying in bed. And God suddenly gave me this. She doesn't belong to you. She belongs to me. That sounds simple. But when you really take that in, it means a lot. He was in, she was in God's hands. And he was allowing that to happen. He was letting God take control of her. And he no longer clung to the things of this earth. He said, if God calls her and he can use her there, then that's what he's going to do. It taught us a lesson on relying on God, about how he found peace in that, knowing that she was in God's hands, that she belonged to him and not to the husband. My wife has found peace in that. When I used to go to work as a firefighter, she would fear, knowing that she may not see me come home. But when he told us that, and she took that in, that I don't belong to her, I belong to him. Instead of a temporary peace, every hour going, well, he's not in a fire now, 
And then an hour later, well, I'm glad there's no fire going on. All those little temporary pieces of peace turned into a more permanent peace. I'm in God's hands. She embraced that truth that God's in every minute. And that temporary peace became a more permanent peace. More often than not, we abandon Jesus as our solution and we look to fill that God-designed relationship need with something worldly that we cling to or marry to and and we try to find other solutions there. Like Israel, I confess I ignore my sin. I oftentimes look for man's approval in the quality of my works, whether it's professions, hobby, ministry. I look for that affirmation from people. And evil fools me into believing that my walk with God is pretty good. It's good enough. Like the Texas lady, I get a little overconfident in my assumptions. We all tend to give ourselves a pass on our sin, whatever it is. Then we come to Sunday, we put on our mask, right? And we smile, and we serve on a ministry team. But know this, God rejects our offerings if we're hypocrites. Any work, any sacrifice, any project, any ministry, any service, it's all filthy rags if we do them for any other reason than to glorify God by giving Him all the credit. He could not care less about our service if He doesn't have our hearts. And it makes Him weary to hear us justify our behavior when we're indulging in selfish practices, just like the, the Israelites did. Isaiah 64, 6 says and confirms it, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Go first and reconcile with your brother, and then bring your sacrifices to the Lord. We're called to be penitent as we worship and serve, and we're terrible at it. So why? Why does God point out my sin and reject my filthy works? It's to show me how desperately I need Jesus. Or else I'll depend on myself and I won't turn to him or have relationship with him. It's like one of the worst things that can happen when you've got that medical situation. You find the answer there that you go, oh, right? It worked. And I didn't use God. It teaches us to be independent from God instead of dependent on him. And it's for the very same reason that God tells us of the consequences, right? Now that scriptures beat us all up with sins, we're going to go on to something a little brighter like the consequences of our sins. Verse 12, cut off. Verse 16, covers his garment with violence. God sees them wandering down a bad road, and he warns them of the penalties. Real quickly, garments had significance in the Old Testament. Instead of stripes on a sleeve, For rank or standing, there was meaning in the hem of a man's robe or his garment. So instead of a ring on a woman's finger as a visible sign, a man placed a corner of his garment over her. In Ezekiel, God says to Israel, I spread my cloak over you like husbands claimed their wives. Remember Joseph, the story of Joseph and the coat, and his brothers were so jealous of this coat. It wasn't because it was cool looking or because it was valuable. It was because it had significance and importance. And the idea of Old Testament garments was even carried forward into the New Testament. If you remember, at the crucifixion, the temple's garment or curtain was torn in two. 
And it meant the end of the need for a high priest to go to God. While Jesus' garment on the cross remained intact. Remember, they, they gambled for it. As he becomes our high priest forever, so we can go to God. But now, with this sin, instead of a garment symbolizing love and protection as it was intended, his garment would now symbolize violence against God's covenant. And being on his garment, his sin would be seen by everyone around. Chuck Missler said, Nothing pollutes God's name more than the misconduct of those whose business it is to honor it. As Christians, we're called to honor it. Nothing pollutes God's name more than the misconduct of those whose business it is to honor it. Consequences. Moses has consequences. Remember, he struck the rock instead of talking to the rock as God had instructed him to. What's it because he followed instructions poorly? No, it's because he didn't trust God's way and he came up with his own thing. And then he suffered consequences. God loved him. God saved him. But there was a consequence. God's made it very clear that when he shows a very specific way to trust him, don't mess with that just to make it more palatable. We notice consequences in our own hearts when we've broken fellowship with God and we fail to believe that he keeps his promises, right? We shape ourselves. Maybe it's self-worthlessness. Shows up like loneliness, bitter attitudes, anxiety and worry, or self-condemnation. Or maybe it's the other side, self-worthiness, pride, resentment, being judgmental. These can all be the results of or the consequences of broken fellowship. Have you noticed in our culture today that it tends to want to shelter our kids from all adversity? Even though we know the old adage that character is formed through adversity. Maybe we're making up for a past hurt that they've experienced, or we don't want them to see the hardship that we saw growing up. We even know that wild animals bred in captivity and protected can't be expected to survive on their own and be released. So if children have no clear-cut rules of discipline and all their adversity is removed, how will their character turn out? God says the consequences can be good. Proverbs 13, 24, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs three eleven, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. Sam said a couple weeks ago, he said, if you're careening toward destruction and someone intervenes, it's not pleasant, but it is for your benefit. Parents, do you love your kids enough to discipline them and let them see the consequences of bad choices? Or do you try to shelter them from all adversity? If those husbands had gone back to their first wives lovingly to reconcile and God beautifully healed the wounds, consequences would be that there'd probably still be lasting scars on those relationships. Ask anyone who's had an affair. The marriage can be healed by God's power. I've seen that. But if they're honest, they'll tell you that even in that healed marriage, they're probably still dealing with some scars. Anytime we break fellowship with God, he can give us difficult but beautiful consequences. Because it's always his desire to use them to drive us, just like the prodigal son, right back into his arms. 
right back into the loving arms of Jesus. All right. Creation, fall, redemption, right? Verse 15. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless. And verse 16. Guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You see where this is going yet? All right, hang with me. Why was God using these hardships to bring them back to him? We know God uses hardships to bring people back to him, but why does he use hardships to bring people back to them? Because he loves them. He loves them. They're his chosen people. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. God reacts to the sin not by dismissing them, not by ignoring them. That could be the worst thing, right, is being ignored. Not by destroying them, not by abandoning them, no. What did he do? He sent the prophet Malachi to point it out to them. He shows them where they're going wrong, points out the details so they have a thorough understanding of their sin. Israel's consequences are all signs of what? God's unending love. He holds off delivering wrath after giving them a little peek of what it might look like, and he shows them love. So here's exactly where it's been going. He's giving them a chance. He's providing a solution. He's making a way for redemption as he always, always does. When they're faithless, he's faithful. In calling out their sins and its consequences, he's showing them a way back to him. By believing that what he tells them to do is good for them and obeying it, they would be, here you go, trusting him. Do not be faithless. Now look up here. They didn't give up. Because God's way was too hard and their way was easy. They gave up because they didn't give God their heart and their faith. If they had done so, then that yoke would be easy and that burden would be light. He gives them a very specific way. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless. What does he mean by that? He means to guard their hearts. Notice he doesn't say guard your behaviors. He says guard yourselves. He means guard your hearts against seeking relationship with things other than me. And have faith in the promises of the Savior to hold you and keep you. The promises that if you are a God follower, it will all turn out for your benefit, even if it doesn't seem like it right now. God wants them back. He wants fellowship with them. He wants their attention. He wants their heart. Hosea 6.6 says, I want your sacrifices. I'm sorry. Hosea 6.6 says, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your love. I don't want offerings. I want you to know me. It's always a heart issue. So, sometimes we look at this and we think, Do they have to earn, the Old Testament folks, earn their salvation by keeping the laws perfectly? No. How do they find eternal salvation in the Old Testament? The same way we do today. Oh, but wait, they didn't have Jesus. God basically told them that if they love him and believe his promise of the coming Savior, then the joy that comes out of that will drive them to gladly obey his laws. So trying to keep the law wasn't earning salvation. It was fruit of believing the promise. 
All throughout the Old Testament, God keeps providing glimpses and shadows of Jesus in these stories and his coming in order to keep them hopeful. So we're no different. God says, if you love me and believe my promised covenant that the Savior Jesus has already come and finished his work, then that joy will drive you to desire to obey my laws. It changes our hearts. So whether they failed then or if we fail now, it doesn't change the promise of the Savior at all, does it? But the consequences is that they and we can both miss out on a great, great deal of joy and blessing that in turn glorify God. And it fills us far beyond that very temporary fun of your sin or that very temporary assurance. It helps us avoid the ugly consequences of your sin of choice. Fully embraced, it's a joy, it's a peace, it's a security, it's an unending love that warms our heart and overflows our wildest imaginations. They looked forward to the coming work of the Savior Jesus. We look back on the finished work of Jesus. So both the Old Testament Jews and us today are saved by believing in the very same promise, and then that belief bears the fruit of obedience. So while salvation is secured, can't be taken away, God still hates our sin, and it has immense consequences. God couldn't even look at Jesus he turned his face away when Jesus became sin on the cross. That's how much God hates sin. But the good news is that Jesus always provides a way out of your sin, both eternally and daily today. It's up to you to receive it. To you, the not yet believer, I say commit your life to him. He offers the solution to eternal life. To you, the believer, commit your life to him. He offers the solution to free you from whatever sin is stealing what should be your unshakable joy. How do we respond to all this? Well, even though we can't lose our genuine salvation, that's no excuse for us to sit back and relax. If that's your case, you don't have a right and good understanding of how magnificent the gospel story of salvation is. A right understanding of salvation will create, like I said before, that joy that we never want to hurt our God, or should I say hurt our fellowship with him. Just like when we have a right understanding of our marriage, we don't want to allow ourselves to hurt our spouse. We want to please them. That's why God uses marriage in this scripture passage. Our sacrifices or our compromises with our spouse or for God, are hypocritical when we want to get something out of it for ourselves. Now, if you're in a struggling or a broken marriage, please know how much we love you. And as a church, we can walk through that with you. Just ask us to come alongside. Men, are you the priest and the teacher in your home modeling Christ's sacrificial love? and attention. Your children are watching and they're learning from how you commit and gently lead and love in your home. They're learning from that. Wives, are you submitting to God's order of the family? That doesn't mean you have to have no input. But what it does mean is that you're sacrificing the desire to control and be in charge. One reason, and there are many, but one reason 
is so that kids see God's order modeled in the home and not a power struggle modeled in the home. Because in their life, they're going to be called to use them both. They're going to be called both to leadership and to submission at different times. And wasn't the church all about submitting as Jesus' bride to his authority? Believe the scriptures when they tell you that this order, God's system for marriage works. My wife and I are a witness to it. And if you're not sure what that's supposed to look like in your home, please just come and contact one of the elders so the church can walk alongside you in that journey. So if you're a single parent trying to model both of these, you've got your work cut out for you. And please, again, lean on us, your church. We love you. And we want to help. All right, singles, I told you not to fall asleep. If you did, wake up. Here's something just for you. How are you spending your time? Are you spending it preparing yourself and your heart to be the faithful husband or wife that will have God as your father-in-law watching over how you care for one of his precious children? Or do you just spend your time examining potential spouses' qualifications to see if they measure up to what you've been shopping for and trying to find someone to fill a void for you? I can tell you, a consumeristic marriage doesn't work. So, the answer to the question, what's our response? It's to guard our hearts against clinging to anything else and place all of our faith in Him who loves us. And some of you might feel convicted right now to the point of despair. And what you need to hear is how forgiven you are and how desperately your God wants you for His very own. How He's made you worthy. Some of you may struggle on the other side with self-righteousness right now. And you need to hear how sinful you are and how desperately you need to repent and reconcile. Why? So that you know how much you need Jesus to save you because you can't save you. No matter how many good works. Actually, I don't know. Maybe we both need to hear, maybe we all need to hear both of those. So knowing the power of the gospel to do this work, ask yourself these two questions. Sam asked one and Rob asked one. I think they're fitting for all parts of Malachi. If you had a prophet in your life today, what would he say to you? If your neighbor only had you to model Jesus for them, how would they see him? Malachi is a story of the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. The first part explains God's design from creation. We all have one Father who loves us immeasurably and will bring us to himself through Jesus. Because of the great fall, we rebel and fall to the same sins. And he tells us of his wrath in order to drive us to Jesus. Work out our salvation through fear and trembling. In redemption, Jesus provides a way to avoid sin today and a way out of eternal sin so that we share in the same hope as they did in the Old Testament. Hope for restoration, for peace, because of Jesus. And then we're a new creation. A new creation that's full of faith. A faith that comforts us, frees us from sin, and assures us because of Jesus. Which causes us then to even have more faith. 
We can realize that God's in every minute of our day and allow him to shape us, or we can resist that truth and end up shaping ourselves. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Spurgeon says this about the uh, scripture. He says, this scripture reminds us that you now have a right approach to your father's throne. No flames of vengeance are there to frighten you now. No fiery sword. Justice cannot strike the innocent. The person who believes in Jesus is not condemned and cannot be punished. How should my soul praise the one who daily loads us with benefits and who crowns me with steadfast love and mercy? Oh, that my praise were as unending as his generosity. This Malachi passage is full of the good news of the gospel. Even when we're faithless, he's faithful. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I just ask you to teach us to devote ourselves to call on our lives to love others. Devote ourselves on a call that you placed on our hearts. A call that's as endless as you are. Lord, I just pray that we would reflect out to others the same love that you've given us in our lives. Forgive us for having fallen so short of this so many times. Teach us, Lord, to be more loyal to our families in our role that you've called us to. Help the lame who are wounded by their own sin to leap like deer at the sound of your forgiveness. Father, help the proud to fall at your feet in humility and admission of our need for you. Feed us, Lord, because we so desperately need it. And God, we just ask you to teach us to rejoice in your ways, even though they don't feel good at the time, because they are for our benefit. And God, we ask you to cause our minds to remember that you are in every minute of our day and teach us to allow you to shape us so that we don't end up shaping ourselves. We ask all this in the name of our beautiful Savior who saves us now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.